Hello, and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by humanitarian AI meetup groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Alexander Pittman, and I'm going to be guest hosting a short interview with Liam Nicole. Brent and Liam spoke earlier in the year about the International Rescue Committee's signpost initiative. And today we're going to be recording a short opening segment for the interview, which was recorded live in New York City. We're going to use this opportunity to hear about discussions Liam and others have been having about ChatGPT since interview's original recording, and really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Liam, it's great to meet you. I had Impact Mapper, and we've also th been thinking a lot about ChatGPT recently and experimenting with it a bit. So would love to hear a bit more on your end about what's going on, you know, what's emerging for you all as you're looking at these different tools. It's obviously really important for humanitarian actors to be thinking about how they can leverage these tools in their work and the workflow, and would love to hear more. So to get us started, Liam, would you like to briefly introduce yourself and tell us what the IRC's Signpost Initiative does? Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Liam Nickel. I'm the product lead for Signpost. The Signpost Initiative is a interagency initiative that is housed partially in the International Rescue Committee. For those who don't know the International Rescue Committee, it was founded by Albert Einstein, so innovation is very much to its core and serves people across the globe who are experiencing displacement or are in emergency settings. IRC is active all across the globe in over 50 countries, and one of its core tenets of the things that it provides is access to information. So that's where Signpost steps in. A signpost, as I said, is an interagency program so that is shared between the International Rescue Committee, Internews, Mercy Corps, and NetHope as its core partners. What we do is we create a feedback loop by which we can provide access to information to people who are in need of that information. So to give you an example of what that looks like, we create content, and that content looks like uh, a how-to article. Maybe it's how to get your visa for the United States, or where do I go to the nearest healthcare center that serves my maternal health needs? Those are some examples of types of short form content we create. We also map services, uh, where they are, when they're open, how to access them, what's the eligibility criteria. So we create this content in every country by which we're, we're working. And then we advertise that content or post that content all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, whatever it might be, to build a platform of people who are following, interacting with that content, and for us to directly kind of uh, reach people who need that information based off of the, the understandings we have about the information they require. From that, people may ask questions because we all know walking through just static content doesn't always answer our whole question. And we'll get into this a little bit later when we talk more about ChatGPT. It's really important at that point, if, if someone sends a message, we have very responsive information that mimics the way people are, are reaching out, that meets accessibility needs. So it, it's either voice messages or 
It's written text. There's emojis if they send an emoji and mirrored. And we send back information that helps people get to the core of what their needs are, depending on what kinds of questions they ask. All that information comes into a pipeline by which we're better able to understand information needs and then start to direct our content and direct our teams about where there are gaps in information, what trends in mis or disinformation are there, uh, what are some quality things that we can improve on a team level. So Signpost is really incredible because we started uh, in 2015 with Refugee Info in Greece. It was uh, one project. There was some small scaling over the next five years. But after COVID, things boomed. And actually, since I started in uh, 2021 during the Afghanistan airlift time, there was about six projects. And now we're well over 20. We're in around 30 countries. We're around 300 active agents within the system who are um, trying to enact this change. And I was just checking our dashboards the other day of 47 million people reached. So it's a really incredible project at scale. So I'm really happy to be here to talk more about it with you. Wow, incredible. That's amazing growth. And it sounds like really significant impact you're having through this initiative and this work. And it sounds like an amazing opportunity to potentially bring in some chat GPT or some right. open AI <laughs> lens here, right? I, I mean, yeah, I would love to hear more about your thoughts on this emergence of this tool and being able to, what it's been like to test it out. And if you feel like this is going to be useful as you're moving forward in this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a good question. And and we're really at the early stages right now of scoping what's possible, what's ethical, to what degree can this be helpful for clients, to what degree can this be helpful for our team who's trying to help provide for clients. And there's so many possibilities. So we started in the past couple of weeks to work with different partners. We hopped on calls with some of the folks from Twilio.org and with the NRC some bot providers with uh, some of our partners at Avanad. Um, we're really familiar with the Microsoft tools to start to understand, you know, what are the implications of these tools? How far can they go? And what are some potential use cases? I'm going to give you an example of where our conversation started. So obviously, the first question people may have is, wow, can you create a bot? that will respond to the complex information needs that someone might have in a humanitarian context. Um, So I'm going to give you an example of like an anonymized version of a message someone might ask. I'm searching for any help to relocate to Texas and reunite with my children. And what what about your organization? Which kinds of humanitarian assistance do you provide? Is there any possibility to help me with my documents? Or may there be any job opportunities I could be involved in? Right there, you're seeing four different messages happening all at once, all very complex questions. And what we did was our first, this is one of our first tests, was we ran that message through the system, prompted the AI to see, can you provide an accurate, detailed, and step-by-step approach to how to respond to how to answer these questions? It could answer some, it could answer parts of them partially. It could not 
understand the complexity of those four pieces connected in sequence. So right there, we kind of understood, okay, there's limitations, but some of the things that we saw that were miraculous were that there was one of our core tenants is responsive information, meaning we reflect the mood, the tone, the feel, the medium by which someone communicates with us. And ChatGPT was able to do that. It reflected tone in these messages. It conveyed seriousness. It conveyed respect, but it also conveyed humanity, uh, which was which is really pretty in- incredible and important towards the work that we're doing. So what we learned from this was that, you know, currently we're looking for ways to have it smart hook to understand who's it answering the question on behalf of, who's the organization in the example, or does this information, um, it like if it does not meet the whole need, how is it offboarding to a person, right? So we need to think about it in a workflow of if the model is not certain about its responses or is maybe half certain, how do we create an off-ramp to the rest of our workflows where we have agents responding to things? In addition, we were kind of curious about looking into ways in which it can synthesize the essential meanings or like the four bullet points that uh, one message gave so that an agent who's picking up the message can really quickly see one, two, three, four. This is the essence of the things that that person's providing to see if we can increase response time. However, I think at this stage, like the way in which we're looking at it is more actually holistic. It's less focused on that interaction. What we proved, I think, uh, and we tested in multiple languages, multiple formats, was that it probably alone (laughs) cannot be responding to the complexity of these inquiries. But what it could do is it can start a process of being more responsive up front. And it's extremely powerful for summarization. Uh, I have a couple other use cases, but I'll stop there at risk of rambling. That's fascinating. It's I love what you had mentioned around kind of the surprising nature of the humanity or the human side and element of the chat that you were able to really leverage there. So could you tell me more about that as well and like where that might come in handy in the future? Yeah. Well, so the core thing that we're striving for as an organization is trust. Mm-hmm. So Signpost at the moment um, in its last research had over 90% trust in all the information that's provided. Where if, if you did the same poll of other sources of information, you are not going to find that level of trust. So for us, trust starts with what I mentioned before, responsive information, which is that we mimic and and respond to our clients in a in an empathetic way that uh, mirrors the speech patterns, the emojis, the voice messages that the people send so that we're able to provide information at our client's level. This is really important because most of the humanitarian sector speaks legalese. Um, They'll tell you, here's how you get your H-1B visa on your, you know, like there's, they'll just list off all these things that are really hard for a normal person without a legal degree to to understand. Um, So what we're doing is we're mimicking the tone of the person so that 
they send us five smiley emojis and like a, a rabbit emoji, we'll send them back at least one emoji to show that, you know, we're here, we're on the same page as them. So when we ran things through, through ChatGPT, it did similarly mimic some of the responsiveness in speech pattern. So we noticed that if you were using colloquial terms, it would respond back oftentimes with some colloquial terms. You know, it's not perfect, but it, it was getting towards that degree of uh, colloquialization. Similarly, when there was an emoji, it was responding back with an emoji. Or if you said, ha ha, lol, sometimes it would make a joke. Um, and the jokes were kind of funny for the record. So, you know, there's, there's some upsides there. Now, does it, the big question at this point is, does it replace the need for human interaction to answer these questions? No, of course not. So it's, it's a really, what it is, is a really cool tool and, and a great way for us to start to think about how to be more responsive and increase trust through our ability and our speed to respond, our workflows behind response, and the direction of our content to learn trends about you know, what works, what does not work. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's such an important point to underscore the importance of the human in this process and, and looking at technology as a support mechanism, as an efficiency mechanism to really get the needed uh, support and interventions and services that you need to in the fastest way. So thank you. I think that's a really important point. And tell me more about the efficiency. I love thinking about chat GPT or other kind of AI models as models for summarization of needs. And then, you know, then when does the human come in and, you know, how does that actually transform the way that we think about responsiveness and humanitarian aids and disaster, you know, I mean, even reflecting on some of the things happening potentially now with, with the earthquakes and, you know, in Turkey or Syria, maybe you have some ideas or thoughts or other use cases that could be relevant here in, you know, in the near future. Yeah, I think on the client side, what it does is it just opens up more search uh, possibilities or more query possibilities to get a more direct answer. But like Google has right now, and like their implementation of BARD will likely have, is none of these, they're only cross-referencing against data that exists. And if data doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. So then you're relying on the who knows basis. And the who knows basis is wherever teams are well-networked. And that's almost always going to come down to official sources, large international organizations, ones that have an understanding of what's going on and are networked to local organizations or people closer to the ground who actually have a sense of the ground truth. And that's really important. So that's really right there is the, the gap in what exists. Now, in terms of like the efficiencies, I actually see it more on a systematic level. And there's a really huge ethical question at play in this as well. So if you think about it, every message that's sent, every piece of information that flows back and forth, every article of content that we post, there are metrics in qualitative information that are not quantifiable or not understandable in the current landscape without some serious, you know, machine learning engineers and like DevOps infrastructure 
we don't want to have that as an as a humanitarian organization to that degree because the money could be going elsewhere. But what ChatGBT does is it'll and as well as uh, what we're expecting Bard will do is that they make the understanding or the summarization of trends closer to the end consumer. They make it easier for us to like run a data set through that in order for it to tell us trends. So if we have a data set of people saying what they need and how they need it, there's potentially an interesting use case of telling user stories as it relates to trends, a multiplicity of trends. So you can see what is a, a single use case agnostic use case look like. So I don't, we don't pull from one person's experience, but rather a whole of experiences to describe what signpost does. Or what if we were to run a trend to get, you know, step-by-step or key takeaways that say, what are some things we can improve in our responses to information based off of what people were asking? Did we holistically answer people's questions? Where did we not? How effective is that? Um, Now, this brings up an ethical question. Do you feed data to an all-knowing AI, right? And specifically, we have client data. All that client data before we analyze it is anonymous. It's anonymized through a series of Python queries. It's anonymized through a lot of information, like four or five different steps that kind of get us to that point, including some manual data cleaning. But what does one mistake mean? It's not a drop in the bucket. That's someone's life. So it needs to be really clear that if we're to use ChatGPT as a sector to understand trends of how we respond and improve, we need even more stringent data protection understandings as it relates to the use or the consumption of this data. So I think we're probably not at that level yet. And now what would get a team to that level is further investment in infrastructure uh, around what our data protection looks like from people who are knowledgeable about artificial intelligence, how it scrapes data, how it understands data, how it weights data, and further investment in data cleaning, which while very manual, oftentimes kind of painstaking, is essential to the protection of our clients. So it's a really, it's a really interesting debate because the, the same thing that could provide so much value in telling your story and understanding your client, understanding the quality of your response could also be a means by which to harm. <laughs> so there's a balance there. So we're trying to figure out what that balance is, where we suit it into our existing suite of tools, and with what partners are we going to work with in order to get that done? Because none of the humanitarian organizations have that infrastructure on their own. Liam, this is Brent. Yeah, that's really cool. And we're hoping to do some more podcast interviews looking at the back end side of that. So I'm really happy that you outlined what the humanitarian community could use in the form of aid from tech companies. Alexandra, what are your thoughts from the impact mapper side of what Liam was just talking about? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think your point is spot on around the security issues and thinking really deeply about how we are thoughtful about what sort of data is shared and what sort of data is 
made private, what sort of risks are at stake, especially for refugees, for human rights activists. We work with a lot of you know, social justice activists, uh, people that are on the front lines of making change and also are often under threat in different ways. And so how we share data, with whom we share data under what conditions is really, really essential. And I really love that point about the importance of data cleaning and that manual work. It does take a lot on the front end and also in the intermediary steps, right, in the process to make sure that we're not sharing really critical and sensitive information. And as a sector, we need more tech investment in, you know, in the infrastructure that we're building to understand the big social issues and problems and how giving is kind of playing a role in the space. And so this is something that we're doing a lot of at Impact Mapper from an outcomes and impact analysis perspective. We have built a tool that now takes a lot of financial data and text data from different foundations and nonprofit organizations doing social justice work and allow that to be coded manually. And we're now in the process of automating some of that and developing algorithms. But what we're doing is ensuring that we're kind of developing those algorithms based on the voices of of activists and of groups that are often not the ones whose voices are heard in in the algorithms, right? So we're trying to make that a much more equitable training database so that predictions can be less biased. And that's something we're really excited about. And so far, we've gotten support from Malala Fund to engage in this work and are building other partners right now to make outcomes and impact analysis and reporting much more effective and efficient, but also just to ensure that we're able to lift up and aggregate lessons from the massive amounts of wealth of knowledge that we have in evaluations that are public research that is public, but we're not actually doing that synthesis work. And I think that there's a lot of really exciting work to be done in this space and the field in this area of aggregating uh, lessons learned, findings, and then sharing that back out to different communities. So with this new emergence of, you know, the, the chat GPT, you know, we're playing around with that too just to see where some of the areas are where we might be able to bring in some of this learning and then actually add our own data. And that's, I think, how we're seeing it within kind of a sandbox, not necessarily sharing it back out, right? So it would stay internal on our database, our private databases for privacy's sake and security's sake. And maybe Liam, I see you nodding your head. So maybe you want to jump in here too, because I'm sure you're having similar conversations as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say the consensus among partners and definitely from our perspective is that if it's to respond direct to a client, it needs to be trained fully on our own content, meaning it needs to be fed information that we know is reliable and it needs to prioritize that information above the other information that exists on the open web because it's hard to trust. It's hard to trust the open web sometimes. So um, for an example, if we have a piece of information in Kenya about whether or not a camp is closing in or like Dadaab refugee camp. There's been a lot of different rumors of potential closures of that camp. And in that there's 
mistrust, there's confusion. If you look up on official sources or on the internet, you're not going to find any information because there's an absence of official information. However, if you look deeper, you will look into social media and on social media, you will see rampant misinformation about that topic. So what we need to be very thoughtful about is how it weights in its search engine optimization and it's like search optimization of like what comes first, what's prioritized and using our own models of seeing how can we supersede a lot of the other information that exists because we can rely on the verifiability of our own content. What's the balance there? And the important thing to strike is the openness in the essence of chat GPT and other tools that are kind of building these large language models and the verifiability of the content, because we all know what exists out on the internet. It's hard to know. So it's a really important question. I'm glad you raised it, Alexandra. I wanted to mention that one of our guests, he mentioned the idea of action transformers, which is sort of a machine learning model that sits in between GPT and you, and it helps to take your question and turn it into a, a database query script. And you can actually choose a database to specifically query publicly published information like the Humanitarian Data Exchange or the International Aid Transparency Initiative and just restrict answers to those databases. And I'm curious what you both think about open data sharing and using these frameworks. And should we be advocating for donors and organizations to channel more information through the Humanitarian Data Exchange and IATI to inform these new chatbots? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, to the extent that that data isn't data that is sensitive information that could put uh, people, organizations at risk, yes, I think it's a really important part of contributing to the overarching ecosystem and ensuring that we have strong data upon which to make decisions as a sector. So the more research, you know, that's being commissioned and evaluation work that's being commissioned that can be shared publicly, the better. And with tools like this, and this is where we really step in and can play a role too, is, you know, we do the synthesis work often manually now. So you can, you can see the power in the entire sector of actually being able to start to automate some of this and look at trends across studies, evaluations over time, over regions, you know, and over issues and thematics that we are missing out on so much of the learning in the sector because we aren't actually sharing data effectively. So that's a huge and core mission of Impact Mappers to, to both advocate for that data sharing and also to provide the analytic tools to do in software tools to do that and to make that a reality because we can really fast forward change in the social impact sector by using data strategically and learning from it and then applying it, right, and adapting it in different contexts effectively. Who would have thought? Yes, this is so what I, we love, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, what's super funny, um, in terms of a use case, like I was, I was thinking about this recently too, uh, we do service mapping. So we map an individual location, when it's open, where it's open, what types of services it provides from a list, a laundry list of 100 different types of services that we've templatized globally. We translate that content and we connect it to a geographic confine. That type of data is the type of data that 
could feed into larger systems that could be supported by large language models or other uh, machine learning models that would allow for us to layer different mapping layers on top to understand where there's service deserts for maternal health in Iraq, or how do I know where to access information related to cash assistance in Western Colombia near the Darien Gap based off of everything that's within my 50-mile radius. We've mapped a lot of data. Local organizations have mapped substantially more data than anyone, but they're disconnected from that system. And then the UN maps a lot of data at the high level that's useful for strategic or resource allocation. But often that information doesn't get translated to a client audience. So what if we took all these layers and we layered them on top of each other and we started to build models that allow us to take that information and build a single source map that tells us for all purposes, resource allocation to referral pathways to where and what different services offer, what's possible. So I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about this type of um, an innovation that's come to our sector and the possibility for information sharing, that's an, a use case where I see like tremendous opportunity for growth because it doesn't exist. It is novel. We still use the four W matrices. We still write in a Excel spreadsheet where and how everyone's working and it's missing half the information and it's and it's not snowballed. So the actual data itself is only reaching the people who are immediately within the need to know or the network that's in power of making that mapping exercise happen. So it's really important for us to do that. Um, so when it comes to like humanitarian data exchange and like as you were mentioning, like pulling from a central database to pool the information to make these types of data analysis projects larger and more important, of course we need to do it. Um, to Alexandra's point, client information <laughs> is where it stops. And there's still a lot of learning that can be done and shared from the client information. The limiter right now, as I said earlier, it's cleaning. It's data, it's understanding of data protection and the implications of that. But ultimately, the understanding and the translation of those, that data into trends is what will help to also unlock to make a more human centered system for us all. That to make something that doesn't feel like an airline chatbot telling you, you can't, you can't change your ticket or your voucher doesn't apply here. We don't want that. Uh, we want a more human system. I love that. Thanks so much, Liam. That's great. Any other advice you have to humanitarian organizations and donors um, moving forward and around the potential of using chat GPT or some of these questions around data sharing? I would say cautious optimism. Mm -hmm. um, I would also say it's important to it's important to not lean into these tools without thinking about the infrastructure or the components behind it that are required to make it sustainable or safe. So what that means is that within each institution, all of us, every organization will be thinking about the use of it, how to make use of it, where is it safe, where is it not safe, how do we collaborate on it? And that's what's been really great for me to see is that 
this type of an innovation has brought people together to share ideas. And, and that's the biggest like silver lining in all of this. But for me, it's if we're to build out and build out tools that can help us reach new heights, it should be collectivized and it should be sitting on, on an infrastructure that can handle it. <laughs> so doing one-off implementations of chat GPT to build your chat bot on this one website in one place, not a good idea. Building it within infrastructures to scale it with everyone, where we bring together minds and different infrastructures with different scopes and abilities, that's the way that we should be thinking about it as a sector. That's the way Signpost thinks about it. It's about building a big tent because what we do is politics. And at the end of the day, those politics and the connection between ourselves is what's going to make the impact greater. So thanks so much, Liam, for this really intriguing conversation. And it was really wonderful to hear what you're doing at Signpost. We'll now move to the next part of the conversation and listen in on an interview that you and Brent had previously done. Welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today. I'm Brent Phillips and we're actually at this great Mexican restaurant and I'm going to be guest hosting an interview with Liam Nicole, who's from IRC. And we're just going to chat about their work on the Signpost Initiative what it is and uh, areas that volunteers can get involved in and to help out. So um, welcome, Liam. Would you like to just tell us a little bit about what IRC is? Yeah, real quick. So I'm Liam. Good to meet you all. I'm the product lead for Signpost, which is part of the International Rescue Committee. We're an organization that helps people who are in flight, in crisis, um, across the globe. Um, it's one of the largest humanitarian aid organizations. Signpost is an interagency project that focuses on empowering people through information. A lot of that information, like nowadays, we know everyone's on social media, or many people are on social media across the globe, and we make use of those tools to reach as many people as possible with accurate, timely, and trustworthy information. Our team kind of acts as a digital signpost, a digital guide towards getting people to the information they need to stay safe. Do chatbots answer these queries or volunteers? Neither actually. So the way that we work is in every country that we function, we have a team. That team is made up of kind of a project lead, what we call moderators or digital community liaisons, depending on how into the humanitarian acronyms you are. But yeah, those moderators are um, really the core people who interact with our teams, as well as our editorial officers who post content. So we've created a cycle where these editorial officers will post content on social media or create articles on our different websites. People will react via Facebook, WhatsApp, Telegram, Viber, etc. And they'll go into our system, which is in Zendesk, that intakes people's questions and the moderators directly respond to them. Those moderators are from the communities that they're serving. They speak the languages of the people that they're serving. Um, we do try and keep a very human approach and we also try and keep a very humanitarian informed approach, which makes it so for us, volunteers, it's hard to use because they may not understand the context, 
and chatbots it may not understand the, yeah. the human aspect of things so we, we do strike a balance we're starting to use some bots for basic onboarding processes mm -hmm. like um, like hi there where are you where are you based so we can give you some better information and then it'll show a map with a couple pictures of regions and they select their region and then we automatically direct that to the right moderator who knows about New York or knows about are you Eastern finding Poland. that a lot of questions that people are asking like obviously there's you know you get millions of people in flight and they all have a lot of the same questions so at some point you've answered all the conceivable questions but yet you're, you're still finding new questions every day so it sounds like you have your you know your, your moderators they're answering the main questions and then What's the inflow of new questions? Yeah, every day there's tens, hundreds of new questions that pop up. Um, what we do is, like I mentioned, there's like this cycle of where we make, when we hear from the questions what people are asking about, and we see what people react to on Facebook or Instagram, like how many comments there are in a post or how many engagements there are in a post will indicate to us that that's content that's worthy of further description. And when people ask us specific questions that we know we can answer and they'll be relevant to other people, we tack them on to existing articles or we create new posts that feed that, that loop. So the more questions people ask, the more we know, the more we can provide answers for. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really, like, wholesome ecosystem yeah. where we're able to uh, get people hey, just getting scale back. answers to questions, I guess. Yeah. yeah, and just getting back to the context, you have, you're operating in how many different crisis, you could say crisis theaters. Like, yep. Uh, like, what are you looking at now? You have Ukraine and Afghanistan, and then, like, for a signpost, what? Like, you have moderators in yep. how many countries, put it that way? Yeah, over 20 now. We have scaled significantly. It was four, the stat was 466%. Wow. last fiscal year so a uh, huge huge upswing in growth how did that come about like you um so we met last year and talked and you guys were i think just getting started yeah. and what happened between last year and this year that like obviously the ukraine crisis happened and that catalyzed a lot of interest and support well i will just say so we, we weren't quite just getting started but we were kind of just starting that upward trend of scale as of like a year and a half ago so the signpost project started in 2015, as you mentioned, in response to the Syria response in uh, Greece. And it kind of grew from that to a few other countries. We had one, two, three, four different projects as of 2020. COVID hit, the crisis in Afghanistan hit, the war in Ukraine has hit. And with all of that, and also just the growing access to information, like there's over the past few years like 30% more people have access to digital and mobile phones across the globe so we just continue to get more and more and more need yeah. uh, like that's very obvious and I'll say like like what we're focusing on right now is being a conduit across the globe for that type of information like there's an obvious need and obligation to support in Ukraine. And we have multiple projects addressing that, including United for Ukraine, which we worked on with Google. But there's also, uh, you know, in partnership with United for Ukraine, which is a local organization. But there's also kind of countries that are traditionally forgotten, yeah. quote unquote. Yemen is a big one right now. Well, and, and even more than, I mean, we have uh, instances 
in the border between Burundi and Tanzania where there's hundreds of thousands of refugees who are kind of unspoken for in global media. Uh, same in Ecuador, many of the Venezuelan refugees fleeing go through Colombia into Ecuador. Yeah. So there's these new kind of frontiers where we're launching that have had existing need for a long time but they don't have the same attention in the media which means there's less funding for it. So we're starting to become a conduit for getting that access to information. Yeah. It's true, it's interesting because you have, you know, the attention might focus elsewhere, but you're still fielding queries, like you're still getting calls in from local people in need of local help, and this is a, you could say, you take the pulse of crises and what's going on, and, you know, this data is still coming in in the form of questions and quantities of questions and the types of questions as you have, you know, a battlefront will move ahead and you'll get new people coming into new geographic areas and uh, you know I'm sure with with a signpost you know thinking from a data perspective you have geospatial data coming in locations and people asking where can I find help in the next town and village and I, I, I think you're, you're probably like the data that you've collected you're starting to realize you have a lot of potential to do new things what's your team seeing in that regard of yeah, so I'd say it was, it was ad, for a while we were kind of ad hoc doing data analysis, like, huh, we need to answer this question that's operational right now, so let's dig directly into that data. About a, a year ago, we started a process towards moving towards uh, pulling all that data together into one aggregate hub where we can analyze at a systems level all these overlapping factors. So. I'll kind of give an example, like um, when someone sends in a message, there's uh, data attached to that that we tag, and then also that kind of just comes in for, through metadata. And what we do is we take, anonymize that data, we also cross-reference it with data on Google Analytics of what websites are, or what web pages are, are popular, or what articles are popular from our perspective, and what posts are working in Facebook. So we can see things like, how our inquiries are attached to reactions and pages which allow us to better target towards the needs of what people are asking about in a certain location and say, hey, this, this area is, is in fact in need of X. So we're just about to kind of take that next step launch um, you know a dashboard that allows us to do that and you know That's it's a journey cool. yeah. so we need to get we need to over like piping all that data in yeah That's exactly a year's worth of work you know? I was gonna ask you about that there's not a lot of places you can store this kind of data this quantity of data obviously you're not doing it internally you don't have your internal servers but yet what are you using on the back end or who are you collaborating with you know obviously you're probably collaborating with everybody but like what does, I don't know, what's the database look like? Is it, what kind of database is it or what? I'll keep it high level for yeah. security concerns, but yeah. what I will say is um, uh, we, we're working in, in a lot of Microsoft tools for our data. They actually helped us scope out this dashboard early on in the Ukraine response. Um, so we were really grateful to that team, the disaster response team over at Microsoft. And we're connected with them through, you know, they, they provide all the enterprise tools for IRC, so we kind of work through that. But as I mentioned before, we're a consortium, so we're actually working with different partners like Internews and um, Mercy Corps. So we're, we're all on similar kind of Microsoft tech stacks, and, and as a result, we're able to work across platform. I will say, though, like, for our everyday work and our use, and 
some of those operational data collection uh, questions. There, we're we're using the tools native to Zendesk, right? Um, where we have direct dashboarding of quick inquiries. We're able to see snapshots of the data as it comes in. And Zendesk has been one of your oldest partners, if yep. I understand. You know, they have a strong volunteer program. Coming from San Francisco originally, you know, I'm familiar with them, and they, they always have volunteers on the streets helping to clean up, and they're, they're really, unlike a lot of companies, they're really receptive to inquiries for help, and I, I really admire that about them. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, like right now, uh, OpenAI in San Francisco just released their chat, GPT, and uh, I think a million people have, have tried it out in the last what, week. But there's so much interest in these new chatbots and new virtual assistants and the machine learning models behind them that power this kind of stuff. And we're kind of entering a whole brand new world where you have humanitarian needs and crises and data and expectations and, you know, just the fact that ChatGPT is here and so fast people expect to be able to use it tomorrow. If you could wish anything, what would you like to do in a month or six months if there were no obstacles in your way? It's a good question. Well, I will say, yeah, Zendesk has been one of our great partners um, for the reason that they give in a, in a way that's, you know, unassuming and, and just endlessly supportive. They give on the volunteer front, they give on the donation front, they give on, like, free use of tools, and that's really allowed us to grow. And I'll say, like, from working with their tools and from thinking about where our roadmap is, we're actually looking at scaling the, the human approach as much as we possibly can. What we're looking at, the thought around chatbots and, and, and further use of kind of digital assistance, it's more from our angle kind of thinking about onboarding processes. So we're at this stage of we're doing the intake and we're fil kind of filtering through questions, answering as many as we can, and pointing people towards services. But the next step is getting people services directly, certain types of services that you can do online, like with uh, United for Ukraine. They had been, we supported them in, in their, their housing workflow where they house 12,000 Ukrainian refugees uh, in the midst of the response using these systems. And the more we can build onboarding processes through those digital and assistants that. and facilitate it, the higher scale we can reach and the less uh, burden it is for the call center agents or for the moderators who should be spending their time on, uh, rather than just collecting like structured data, working with people to make them feel as though the process is heathen, it's consistent, it's quality. Yeah. So that's that's how we want like, to use those that's tools where, um, as an extra add-on, you know? Yeah, it's kind of interesting what you said that, you know, we're thinking about data and analytics, but at the end of the day, this is a very human connections and human forms of help that are facilitated through AI and technology. And it's nice that you're you're returning to that yep. and you're emphasizing that at the end of the day it's still about you know another person helping another person and just using these tools again to facilitate it I would say like it's about giving people access to the information is about networking okay you have a great resource and signpost with a lot of 
support and some capacity in many countries across the globe. But making sure that those connections are made is the really important thing. So that's you know one of the big parts of the next couple yeah. of years of our strategy. It's technology is a tool. It's yeah. not the means. And to localize it, like you yep. said, to bring it down to the local level. And I yep. know the humanitarian community is... Yeah, it's programming first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're trying to emphasize that and get people involved. And uh, So, um, you know, the, the Humanitarian AI Today podcast, a lot of our listeners are students and researchers, and we try to introduce them to humanitarian actors and what the world looks like from your vantage point. And uh, I don't know, what would you... What message would you give to you know, a student or a researcher about yeah. what you're doing and how they can help, maybe on a high level, and then maybe what your, maybe what your needs are or ideal wishes for help would be? I'd say the first thing is, when we're thinking about tech for good, the good is not accomplished by the tech itself. So, what we have thousands and millions of people across the world who are skilled engineers, right? And they have ambition to do something good. And that's very clear in working with the tech sector. Everyone wants to make an impact. The intention to make an impact has to include an empathetic thought process that allows for that development of new technology to be informed solely by the context of what people need, right? Yeah. So I would challenge anyone who's like a student, who's a, de a developer interested in doing tech for good work, to think about technology as a means to support ongoing efforts to, to provide for people. And get to know humanitarian actors and what, again, like what the world, yeah. what what the world looks like to yeah. them and you're on the ground again in Poland or Ukraine and you know, this winter's gonna be brutal. Yeah, and the humanitarian needs are brutal. And how can you get up to speed in that context and help yeah. out? And I'll give you an, a practical example. We can deploy a chatbot, right? Yeah. Most of the larger humanitarian organizations and many, like local NGOs, deploy chatbots. There's a distinction between a good chatbot that facilitates a process and a chatbot that might frustrate someone who's already going through a frustrating and unempathetic and consistently dehumanizing process. So if we think about it like this, everyone sat in those chatbot or phone line queues at Delta or like a big airline yeah. and felt horrible before, right? <laughs> and not get anywhere. Just and not hard, get yeah. anywhere. So that is close to or adjacent to the current approach of humanitarian processes. We do not have a customer service uh, yeah. mindset, right? Exactly. It's like it's it's a scarcity mindset. Yeah. Yep. And you have a refugee, like your phone, you know, it's almost out of juice and <laughs> you're sucking it, you're using up credits and you don't have time to mess around. Yeah, you know, and you're your resource constrained. Yeah. You, you might not be able to stay on for enough minutes because yeah. you're thinking about your budget. Yeah, exactly. It, that is not we the, need to understand the operating that. model. Yeah, so, exactly. so as as a developer or as a product manager or someone who's going to be involved with the creation of these tools, we should be thinking about quality over deployment of new tools. It's not success to say we deployed. Yeah. It's success to say this process functions for this many people and they enjoy it. 
or they, they have positive feedback, not enjoy necessarily. Yeah. You know, we talked yesterday on the phone just a little bit, and humanitarian operations 2.0 or 3.0 in the age of AI. Like, what's your, um, I don't know, what would you love to see exist, like in functionality? You know, ideally, I'd like to be able to just pull out my phone and say, you know, who can I help? Where, like, where it needs most urgent, mm -hmm. and have the computer be able to, to, for my ten dollar donation, yeah. route it to some aid organization in Yemen that needs a truck tire, like now, today, and to be able to sort of triage needs on a global scale. Yeah, I would say like triage and like consolidation of effort by the global community of humanitarian work. Mm -hmm. is the most important part to unlocking any functionality to work. We can build all the functions in the world, and they all have been built. Everything we need to make the perfect system exists. So it's about building out like what's important before we even think about you know those functionalities. It's about connecting the dots between different teams so we can do things like like single point of entry cash delivery for a whole country or with pooled resources or we can think about things like transfer of data across different uh, organizations so we can direct a response with a data informed approach and what that requires is collaboration it requires a networked approach which is not just thinking about the humanitarian actors themselves because we have our own limits of power and resources but also the organizations the donors that support us and the people we're, we're responsible to to meet which is our own clients so there needs to be feedback from every angle power on every angle to kind of feed the system that makes those decisions and we need to pool resources yeah I think that's important right now and you know, you get a bunch of people together and you can knock out a lot of good in a short time. And I would love to see 2023 the year of doing something really cool, like creating a, a greater fabric behind data yeah. sharing and things like that. We're getting close to the end of our interview here and we'd love to ask everybody this famous closing question of if you could think of a futuristic AI application what would you love to see exist? And uh, naturally, we're humanitarians here, but it could be anything. Like, what? Just what's the first thing that comes to mind? So my first thing, <laughs> I, I will qualify this and say, again, a AI is not the answer; it is a tool. So in that, I'm going to try and provide a tool as a response. And I think a tool that could be really useful would be a way to take data streams, anonymize them fully, like automatically anonymize. There's some tools that do it, but they, they fail to meet multilingual abilities. That could take, you know, the ability for you to translate and, and um, work across different languages and pull the information into a central place where the data can be automatically analyzed, processed, displayed, while keeping it in its native language. What I mean by that is a lot of the time when we're doing these machine learning models or things for analysis, it's actually through translation 
of that direct content into English or Spanish or French. Yeah. Because the models don't suit most languages. So I'd want to think about something that allows for data to be in context of its language. So that means you need to get to a spot of, of increased uh, AI and virtual assistant and, and translation abilities, but also that uh, it's baked into a workflow where you know we're, we're able to kind of do those types of translations all together and uh, siphon data into a central node. I would say, you know, and again, it's like... And I love that, by the way. It's, I never thought of it that way. It's true. They're just like the, to process the information, you know, in, yeah. in the language they were or, or, or Well, we talk language. about inclusion. Yeah. Inclusion yeah. means that we do it at every level. Yeah. So data analysis should not be an exclusive thing. It yeah. should not only be for the dominant languages politically yeah. of the world. Quote, and we lose so much in translation. You know, that's kind of a cliche, but it's... Yeah, so I think about it like that. Well, cool. Thank you so much, Liam. It's great to have you on the podcast. We really appreciate your time. Me. And uh, this brings yeah. this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close. Signpost.ngo. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in.